Well, hey, good morning, RCC. As Andrew said, my name is Dave. I'm the preaching pastor at Londonderry Christian Church just up the road in Londonderry. And so as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus today, I want to start off by sharing a quote with you from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What he's telling us is that how we view God impacts everything else about our life. That how we live, what we do, how we feel, all that is connected to how we view God. And if our view of God is skewed, if it's not biblical, then we're not going to be able to have the same view of everything else. In our lives. And so we want to have the, the proper view of God. And so uh, my guess is that for most of us, uh, our view of God lies somewhere on a continuum. And there's kind of two ends on the continuum. On, on one side is what I would call uh, the Bruce Almighty view of God. If you've seen the movie, uh, there's a, a, a part of the movie where Bruce has had the worst day ever. Uh, he, everything has gone wrong. He, everything is terrible. He hates life. He's so mad. And this is what he says. He says that God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. That Bruce's view is that God is an angry God. That God's goal is to inflict pain upon those he created, that we're the ant and he's just burning our feelers off because he wants to and he thinks it's funny. That's one side of the continuum. Uh, the other side would be what I would call the St. Augustine view. St. Augustine, uh, when he was conceiving of trying to explain the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he uh, came up with this view. He said that the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them. And so that at the core of Augustine's view of God was that God is love from 1 John, where the word tells us that God is love. And so he sees God as this loving, caring, kind being. And, and so on one side, you have God's angry. He's out to get us. And then the other side is God is love. He's for us and wants the best for us. And my guess is that you fall somewhere between those. And possibly some days you may be closer to one side than the other, that it may not be static, but it's moving. And how we view God impacts everything else about us. And there are a variety of reasons why we might have a particular view of God, why we might be more on the angry side or more on the love side. But part of what may impact that is how our lives have gone when it comes to figures of authority, particularly our parents. If you grew up in a household that was strict, that was stern, that if you broke a rule, you got a consequence right away, that you were whacked with uh, some form of punishment. If your parents didn't speak loving kindness to you, but you heard words of anger and meanness and you were torn down, it's really, really easy to buy into the view of God that he's angry. I mean, my dad was angry, and if God's the father, then I know what that's like. If you grew up in a household where your parents were loving, supportive, and kind, yeah, you had rules, but there was a reason. 
it's a lot easier than to say, oh my God, is love. I felt so much support and kindness from my parents. They, they lifted me up like, yeah, of course God's like that. That all of us have a view of God and how we view God impacts everything else. And so the reason I want, want to set the stage here is because today we're digging into the plague narrative in Exodus. And when you come to the plague narrative, how you view God is going to impact what you take away. If you see God as angry, there's a lot of stuff in this narrative that you can go, yeah, God is angry. Look at what he's doing. He's so mean. How could he do that? Or if you see God as love, there's other stuff in this narrative that you're going to see and go, see, God's loving. He's giving them opportunities. See what he's, what's going on here. And so we needed to kind of just know ahead of time where we fall in the continuum, because as we read this story, as we dig into this text, it's going to impact how this text speaks to you. And so I want you to think about that as we're diving in. So today we're looking at this long section of scripture, starting in Exodus chapter 7, going to the end of chapter 10, and we're going to cover the first nine plagues that happen in this story. But before we dig into this text, there's one more piece of background that I want to cover that you may have already went over with other preachers that have been here, or Ben may have done it early in the series, but if he hasn't, I want to go over, and if he has, it's a refresher for you. So in the Old Testament, in the biblical story, there are two main big bads. If you're not familiar with that language, it's the idea of the villain of the story. So if you like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you've seen the Avengers movies, in the first Avengers movie, the villain is Loki. He's the bad guy. He's got the Infinity Stone. we got to stop him. But Loki is not the big bad. That we'll learn later is Thanos. He's the villain pulling the strings. He's the bad guy. And so in the Old Testament... There are two main characters or nations or people that are the big bad, that when their names come up, the, the things Jewish readers would think about or hearers think about is that they're evil. Like These are our enemy. We don't like them. They're terrible and awful. So the one that dominates most of the Old Testament is Babylon. They show up first in Genesis uh, chapter 10, the Tower of Babel. Babylon shows up there and then comes up later. They are the big bad. They're the ones that take Israel into exile. They're awful. But in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the big bad is Egypt. Egypt is the villain. And so when we read about Egypt, they are not being depicted as an innocent um, naive, um, undeserving nation. These are evil people, particularly their leader, Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the Old Testament is a really, really bad guy. He's evil. There's a reason, I believe, that in the book of Exodus, we're not given the names of the Pharaohs. It's possible that the Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and the Pharaoh in Exodus 7 are not the same person. But the Bible doesn't care because the point isn't the actual name. The point is the character. And so Pharaoh is evil. In Exodus chapter 1, 
Because he's afraid of the Israelites, he puts them into slavery. He oppresses them. Because of his fear of the Israelites, he orders the genocide of all the Israelite boys. Like, th this is not an innocent character. So the things that are going to take place in the plague story are for a reason. And part of that is Pharaoh is the villain. He's evil. He's bad. And so part of what may happen has a reason. All right, so that's the background stuff that we need to cover before we dig in. So now let's dig into this story, this narrative about the plagues. So here's the question that we're going to begin with which is, what is the biblical story of the plagues seeking to teach God's people? Why does the Bible give us these 153 verses about plagues against Egypt? Well, here's the reason. This is the point of the story. Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt. If you want to know why is this in the Bible, this is why. Because the Bible is telling us that Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 3. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Yahweh tells us at the beginning of Exodus chapter 7 that the reason all this is going to happen is so that Egypt will know that he is Yahweh. That he is the king of all things and each plague will be a declaration that he is greater than the gods of Egypt. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 9 starting in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You will set yourself up against my people and not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person, an animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Here in Plague 7, Yahweh says that he's going to bring the full force of his plagues upon the people of Egypt. So far we've seen two sets of three plagues take place in the story, yet still Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. And God says the reason he's doing this, so they would know he is God. And so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. That Yahweh is demonstrating that he is greater than the gods of Egypt. So, so why is this story here? Because we need that reminder. 
that, that God is giving this, this story, this is happening, so the Egyptians will know that he is greater, that the gods they worship, uh, the pantheon that they believe in, are all hollow when it comes to Yahweh. They can't do what they say they can do. And it's given to the Israelites because they get forgetful. And they're going to go into a land filled with lots of other gods who all make different claims of what they can do. If you want to find security, prosperity, wealth, if you want to have military might, you worship these other gods. And Yahweh is telling them, hey, remember what happened in Egypt. These other gods are nothing compared to me. I am greater than all of them. And it's being told to us so that we will know that Yahweh is greater. No other God compares to the God we believe in. It's not because he's an angry kid seeking to inflict pain, but because he is greater. All these other gods are making hollow claims. They cannot fulfill. Yahweh is greater. And so we see throughout the plague narrative how Yahweh demonstrates his greatness. Uh, the first way we see Yahweh show his power and might is that Yahweh controls creation. Yahweh controls creation. Look at Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 9. It says, uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, that, so that you may know there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. So in the plague story, the first two plagues, the first one, the plague of blood on the Nile, and the second one, the plague of frogs, it tells us in the story that the Egyptian priests or magicians, they can do the same plague. They can cause the plague to happen. But what they can't do is stop the plague from happening. And so here in the second plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, when do you want the plague to stop? That, that my God wants to flex his muscle and show you he's the real God. And so tell me, when do you want the frogs to go away? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And so the next day, the frogs all die. Because Yahweh controls creation. That the Egyptian gods who claim to do so don't. That this plague is a direct assault on one of the Egyptian gods. They believed in a god called Haket, who was a fertility goddess, and her head was that of a frog. And so she's supposed to control reproduction, but she can't keep the animals that look like her from reproducing so much that they're everywhere in Egypt. Only Yahweh could do that. He puts a stop to what's happening. And part of what's happening here as well is that Yahweh has, has control over creation, meaning that he has set boundaries on where things are supposed to be, that he's the one who brought order to the chaos. And so the Egyptians believed in this idea of Mot, and it was the Pharaoh's job to maintain Mot, which was order in their society and in their world. And yet frogs, they're an amphibious creature. Their place of order is near water. And yet they're everywhere. I love how 
Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this play. She said, So God made frogs come hopping and leaping and jumping in your bed frogs, in your hair frogs, in your soup frogs, all over everywhere, frogs. Frogs should not be in your soup. Frogs should not be in your hair. And so part of what happens, how God demonstrates his control over creation is he removes that boundary. And so the frogs are everywhere they're not supposed to be. Because Yahweh controls creation. Look at Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals, on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Starting with the fourth plague... Yahweh controls creation and makes a distinction between his people in the land of Goshen and Egypt. And so from plague four on, the stuff happens to the Egyptians, but the Israelites are spared because Yahweh controls creation. He decides where it's going to happen and where it's not, and he's going to protect his people. That Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt. The second thing we see of how this is true is that Yahweh judges the gods of Egypt. That every plague can be tied directly to a god in the Egyptian pantheon. Every plague, in some way, God is showing these gods you follow are nothing. They are hollow. They can't do what they say they can do. Only I am God. I am the king over all things. It's, it's a direct attack on Pharaoh, who they believe to be an incarnation of their god, Horus and Ra, whose job is to keep everything going smoothly. And we get... Ten plagues of unsmoothness, like things are disrupted. People, this is going awful because Pharaoh can't do his job. And part of what's happening here is it tells us the story that Pharaoh hardens his heart. But then later in the story, it says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so this is where we get that, that moment of if we view God a certain way, we can walk away from the story with, with a different outlook. And so what's going on here where at times it says Pharaoh hardens his heart, other times Yahweh hardens his heart. Well, part of how Yahweh is judging the gods of Egypt. Again, Pharaoh is not a good guy. He's not a helpless, hapless, innocent victim. He is the villain of the story. And so when he hardens his heart, he's already been in rebellion to Yahweh against God and his people. And so when Moses says, let my people go, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no. And you get through the first few plagues, that pattern happens. Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no. And we get to a point where Yahweh hardens his heart. 
And part of what I think is happening is that when we are living in rebellion to God, God's wrath often isn't necessarily the form of God causing a bad thing to happen to us. It's that Yahweh says, this is what you want? Okay, you can have it. That Pharaoh had already started this pattern of opposition to Yahweh and his people, and it gets to a point of no return, and God says, okay, that's what you want? You can have it. You don't want to obey? Fine. And his heart is hardened so that Yahweh can show his full power over the gods of Egypt. And so Yahweh is judging those gods. Yahweh is greater than any other God, greater than the gods of Egypt, greater than any God we could choose to follow. He is the greatest. And what we need to know is that only Yahweh can deliver his people. Only Yahweh can deliver his people. Look at Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 6. It says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. And I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Yahweh promised his people that he would free them from the yoke of the Egyptians, that he would deliver them and redeem them, that he would set them free with his power so that they would know that he was Yahweh, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the king of the universe. And so the plagues take place to demonstrate that only Yahweh can deliver his people. He alone is God. He is Yahweh. And they would have an ongoing celebration every year to remember that only Yahweh could deliver them. They would gather for the feast of Passover so that they would know that only Yahweh could deliver them. Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt. He's greater than all other gods. So what does that mean for us? I mean, it's a nice history lesson to hear about what God did, his judgment of the gods of Egypt, his power over creation, but what does that mean for us? Well, whether we admit it or not, we are all worshipers. And I don't mean on Sunday morning. If you come to church, if you're watching from home, you all gather together. We come together to worship our God, which is great and important and necessary as followers of Jesus. But the question is, what do you worship Monday through Saturday? There are lots of gods out there that we can worship. And unfortunately for us, it's not as easy to identify as it was back in the days of Egypt. They had a defined pantheon that all had animal heads. If you're worshiping Heket, the frog goddess, you know. You like frogs. For us, the gods we worship aren't like the Greek gods that have backstories. 
But the gods we worship are just as real in how we worship them. For us, we may worship the God of security or comfort or power or pleasure or pride. That we worship other gods that, that may seem okay to us because, well, yeah, we're not lighting incense or, or giving a gift on an altar, but we're spending our time, energy, and effort in pursuit of these things and worship of them. And those things are all making claims on our lives. If we worship security, it's going to say, I'll keep you safe. And I don't know about you, but a pandemic certainly shook my belief in security. Maybe those aren't the gods you worship. Maybe, maybe you're like me, and the God you worship is the God of self. Now, I don't mean that I believe or I worship myself as if I think I'm the king of the universe. I don't think my ego is that big. But I believe that I am in control of my life. And I too often live as if I'm the boss of my life. And that I can order things around me to happen the way I think they should or the way that I want them to. Having kids helps shatter that illusion. Because <laughs> I can't control them the way I want to. But I recognize that the God I most worship outside of the God I, I serve is the God of me. And so every day I have to choose to repent and turn away from that false idol because I'm a really lousy God. I can't control anything, no matter how hard I try or think I can. And so whatever God you're worshiping, whatever claim it's making and telling you that it can do for you is a lie. Because only Yahweh can deliver his people. Only Yahweh can free us. Only Yahweh can get us out of the bondage we live in. Only Yahweh can get us out of the slavery to sin we find ourselves in. And so we have this story to remind us to repent and turn away from whatever God we're serving and put our focus back on the only God who can save. The God who with a word said the frogs were done. It's the same God who with a word told the wind and the waves to be still. Is the same God who sent his son to take the judgment that our false worship deserves. To remind us that he's a God who loves us and is with us and wants to get us out of the slavery and bondage we find ourselves in. And so as we see that God, we fall to our knees in worship because only he can deliver us. Here's my question that I want you to think about. Who or what are you trusting to free you? Who or what are you worshiping thinking that can set you free? And here's the biblical truth. Yahweh is greater than all other gods. Only he can free us. Only he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray.
Mighty God, we thank you for the reminder of your great love, for what you have done for us, for your power revealed through your judgment upon Egypt. God, I pray that you would help us to turn our eyes fully to you, that we would recognize the gods in our lives that we choose to worship that are hollow and false, and that we would repent from those things, fall to our knees, turn our eyes to you, and cry out for you to set us free. God, help us, whether that takes every moment of every day, to keep turning our eyes back to you, to trust you, to follow you, and allow you to free us. It's in your son's great and powerful name we pray. Amen.